Well, hello there, teeming masses of humanity. Welcome back to another episode. This is TC Rollins. And this is Rain DeGray. And I guess we should introduce this guy, or let him introduce himself. Oh, hello, uh, I'm Stephen Stein. I, I go by Steve. I'm an associate professor at uh, the University of Memphis. And if you haven't guessed by now, we are going to be interviewing him. Because why, Rain? Because... He is a historian and an author with a new book out, and not just any book, but a book called Sadomasochism and the BDSM Community in the United States. Subtitled, Kinky People Unite. It was supposed to be the other way around. (laughs) That's one of the questions I had, is I was looking at it, I was like, it seems like the subtitle should be the main title. Was that like a print error? The pub, that was the publisher's decision. Uh, they insisted huh. that it had to go that way for internet searches. But but yes, it will always be kinky people unite to me. While that is the sort of subject that fits right in this podcast, our guest has written more than one book. And his previous work has included books such as From Torpedoes to Aviation, Washington, Ivan Chambers, and Technological Innovation in the New Navy, 1877 to 1913. So, of course, you may be asking yourself, why is a military historian writing a book about the history of BDSM in America? I'm asking exactly that. Well, you know what? Enough about us. Let's just get to the interview and possibly all shall be revealed. Ooh. This book has a bit of an interesting gestation, at at least for me. Uh, The beginning of it all started when you met an editor while you were working for a textbook publisher. I'm curious, do you think this book would have existed if you hadn't met that editor who was involved in the NLA? Um, Probably not, Uh, uh, because, of course, who you're talking about is is, uh, Jan Hall, right, who's still around, still Mm -hmm. on the scene and and was uh, president of the NLA. And, yeah, she hired me for some uh, uh, just textbook work. Um, yeah, many years ago, and then she got me involved in writing uh, the history of the NLA. Um, you know, which, what she says is that uh, Tony de Blas, you know, shortly before he died, right, kind of the, the publisher of Dungeon Master, kind of the premier uh, BDSM educator of the 80s and 90s, had, uh, uh, had encouraged her to make sure someone wrote the history of the National Leather Association. You know, so since she knew me, uh, she contacted me, and that was kind of my first big kink project. I'm really a a military historian uh, is my primary training. So I've written in military history and and maritime history and and, uh, things like that, online teaching. But as I like to say, there's a certain overlap between military history and and the kink community in terms of the organized, socially sanctioned use of violence. So not everybody would say yes if someone approached them and said, hey, I know that you're writing about the military, would you be interested in writing about the history of the leather community? What prompted you to say yes to that original request? Um, well, Jan's a good friend. Uh, and, uh, you know, I've had friends in the community for a long time. So it didn't you know, kind of come out of nowhere. Um, and uh, it's uh, as a historian, right, it's uh, it's rare to be first. To something. I'm a military historian, and I suppose I could write another book on World War II, but it's hard to see how the world needs. <laughs> There's not enough of those. <laughs> enough, you know, on, on World War II or the Civil War or any of these things. Um, so, yeah, it, it's great to be first. 
you know, so in terms of the NLA, that was one of the first histories of an organization. And then, of course, now with, with Kinky People Unite, kind of the first broad history of the community in the United States. So you said that you have had other friends in the community and it didn't shock you when you were asked that. Are you, if you don't mind disclosing on this podcast, are you yourself kinky or no? Um, kinky enough that I'm comfortable in the community and uh, nothing really shocks me. Um, so, uh, oh. so if you're talking about kind of, if you have a chance to glance at the book, when I talk about uh, the vault, say, in New York, I had been to the vault. Oh, okay. I like that. I like the fact that you're not just an outsider writing about it, which does happen. It's like, oh, look at this interesting subculture. Let me scribble some notes. But the fact that you actually have your feet wet, as it were. You're not approaching it from a purely academic perspective, you would say. No, you know, I, I, think, uh, I think that's, that's accurate. Yeah, I tried to write for an academic audience, but a book that's, that's anybody uh, can pick up and read uh, and, and get something out of it. Uh, so hopefully not a, a dry academic tome. They can be a bit like chewing on cardboard. It's true. What exactly did your research look like in the course of doing this, putting together this book? Um, well, I interviewed a few people. I, I was fortunate because uh, uh, the interviews go back, of course, to the, the previous book, Living in Leather, on the on the National Leather Association. So I talked to Pat Bond. You know, some years back, the founder of, of TESS in New York, the first uh, BDSM organization, talked to people in uh, the NLA, of course, uh, talked to Nancy Ava Miller, uh, who founded uh, People Exchanging Power, which, you know, at its peak had chapters uh, all over the country. Apex, right, in, uh, in Arizona, of course, is an old pep chapter. Black Rose in D.C. is an old pep chapter. Uh, and in fact, Nancy's the one who had that great photo that I used on the cover. Yeah, a lot of it is uh, Kinsey Institute. You know, in Indiana, of all places, has uh, an extensive archive, uh, and they have better records, really, for kind of the early periods, even kind of 40s, 50s, 60s, even in the 70s. Uh, and then, of course, the Leather Archives and Museum in Chicago, where I could look at organization records and correspondence of leading figures. And it's uh, the Leather Archives is, is pretty good. When I first was there, it's going way back, it was not terribly well organized. At this point, they've had some really good people uh, working there. Uh, Rick Storr and, and now Mel is there. And it's high quality, easy to find, good finding aids. Not quite as nice as Library of Congress, maybe, but, uh, but a really good place to do, uh, to do research. Did you uh, come across anything in the course of your research that you found disturbing or perturbing or unpleasant to you? And on the other side of the coin, did you come across anything that you found intriguing or you were, you know, making a mental checklist? I want to circle back to that at a later date. Well, it's probably no surprise to you guys or, or any of your listeners that uh, you know, the, the BDSM community um, has a certain amount of kind of nastiness and infighting to it. And so when you're going through records, you're finding correspondences, you know, from all the the people who are feuding, mm. uh, the NLA in particular, it was, uh, I can't get my issue addressed at my local chapter, so I'm taking this up to national so that you guys can go lean on whoever I'm upset with. Or, um, you know, so, you know, the, the constant arguments, uh, which is just, uh, you know, what you expect from the community. Probably what most surprised me is uh, Tony DeBlas, who, of course, founds Dungeon Master Magazine uh, 1979. He's best known these days for the leather pride flag, but that's really his least important accomplishment in a lot of ways. 
uh, it was just how committed he was to education, how early that, that he'd organized SM University, his own little kind of faculty of traveling speakers, charging tuition and selling student IDs. It was, it was actually really interesting what he'd done. Uh, and that, of course, then builds into his other educational efforts. So a lot of a lot of what makes the BDSM community very interesting and I think almost unique as a community is this emphasis on education, right? That that people who outside the community go, you know, go to their local group and they're expecting an orgy. And, and what they're actually at is a lecture. Kink is Kink has some of the nastiest politics I've actually seen. And and I think part really? of it is you're in a sexually tinged environment. So, so when these sexual relationships go wrong, that can kind of poison things and make a bad situation worse. And it's also, in a certain sense, the kink community, by creating safe, sane, consensual, by creating this very important uh, uh, kind of criteria for how people should behave and, and treat one another, both in scene and out of scene, you also then give... Uh, a weapon to what I think in other circumstances we would call trolls who will run around and cause trouble and say, yeah, so-and-so is not safe, mm-hmm. same consensual. And, and it's, it's easy ammunition for those who want to, uh, who want to use it. Plus all the other problems of, uh, of sexual communities, uh, status, right? For the heavier you play, the more status you have. And that of course is, mm-hmm. is just looking for trouble. Mm. And whenever you get some sort of community where it's all fairly incestuous and that everybody has played with everyone else or that everybody has dated similar folks within that, and then you do get the emotions that come out of having to see an ex, since a lot of times in in most communities, it's a very small circle, unless you're dealing with a major metropolitan area, you're still going to keep running into the same people that you might have had a bad experience with. Which as a lifestyle kinkster, it, I mean, it sucks because I want to avoid the conflict and drama. And I was just wondering, you know, why it is uh, hearkening back to your title, like kinky people unite. We're all kinky, but I, it doesn't feel like there's a lot of, of unity. Yeah. And that's kind of the, the trajectory I took in my book, which, which is the community goes through uh, some real interesting phases, which is that uh, particularly in the 70s, you get the first BDSM organizations forming. Uh, in the 80s, there's just an enormous upswelling of new organizations forming. Uh, about 200 in the early 80s form all over the country. Uh, and the emphasis then really was bringing the community together. The community was a lot smaller than and people like Tony de Blas or the NLA, all these organizations wanted to bring people together. So you can kind of go through the old uh, club newsletters and magazines, and it's almost a constant message uh, of stop backbiting, stop fighting each other, stop arguing about who is or isn't fitting your definition of, of leather mm-hmm. or SM or kink. We have to bring ourselves together because we are such a small group. The only way we have a voice, right? the only way we get the police to stop censoring our publications and raiding our parties, right, arresting you know, people uh, as used to be routine, is to organize. And that's, of course, part of why uh, Tony de Blas created the leather pride flag was to have one flag <laughs> to kind of symbolize that unity. Uh-huh. Uh, but what I suggest happens, and obviously other scholars will follow me and I may dispute this, is that once... The BDSM community, by and large, got its primary political goals met. 
which really was. Stop messing up our fun. Stop stop raiding our parties. Right? And the last big raids happened in 1999, 2000, 2001. The community began fragmenting again. Right? What brought it together was that outside pressure. And then you could also say, you know, over the last 10 years, right, we have a 50 shades of gray effect, right? Um, a massive influx of new people into the community. And at the same time, right, the Internet. You know, if you go back to the 1980s, how do you learn about BDSM? Well, you subscribe to Dungeon Master or Sam Utopian Guardian. You join mm-hmm. a Society of Janus, right, or one of your, your local group. How do you learn about BDSM now? You, you read Fifty Shades of Grey and start Googling. <laughs> True. Go start poking around on FetLife. <laughs> FetLife, right. And, and, of course, look at all the complaints on FetLife uh, of abuse, uh, mm-hmm. cops, right, stalking, mm. right, all the mm. things the community organized originally mm-hmm. for, right, to prevent. Mm. To, to, you know, safe, sane, consensual was more than just how you play in the dungeon. It was keeping the community as a whole safe. Mm-hmm. Right, excluding dangerous people, or hopefully educating them so they cease to be dangerous people. But there's there's so much debate still as to what is safe, sane, and consensual because there's plenty of people who say that kink is not okay. Uh, when when FetLife started, it was fair game for anything. There was, there was animal play, there was fecal play, and they've slowly weeded out everything else and saying no. We are kinky, but that's too kinky, and that's not that that's not where we're going to be going with that. So, do you see that this is going to keep winnowing down to this is what we consider to be kink, and this is not okay to to fall under our banner? Yeah, I, I think that's like I said, the safe, saying consensual, or or if you prefer rack or one of the newer terms. I mean, they're all have have that same potential to be abused for the community to be over policed, and I think that's to be expected. The problem is is that there's no one to adjudicate these debates anymore. When you had a figure, and I keep going back to him, but Tony de Blas really was this just larger-than-life figure. And he, so he wrote in Drummer, he wrote in Dungeon Master. And if you had these kind of elder figures weighing in and saying, yeah, that may be a problem, no, you need to back off, that helped, right? You kind of ameliorate the problems with SSC. Without that mm. now... Right. Everybody's an expert. Right. You, you, as you said, you join Fat Life, you, you know, kind of super dom 101 or whoever you are. And and you start laying down, <laughs> down the law. Your, your voice is as loud as anyone's. Mm-hmm. My question, I don't know if you examined this in the book, but it's just so strange that you, you start from a post World War Two perspective, because I mean, there was there was kink, there was BDSM that was happening in the United States prior to that. But most histories start from World War Two, since that was a huge shakeup within society. But how did it get from this point of people just putting newspaper personal ads out there, hoping that somebody else that might be interested in the thing that they're interested in how did it get from that just small little pockets of people casting their little rod out into the hopeful kinky seas to actually forming these large national groups? Yeah, World War II, as you said, is important for a whole host of reasons. But uh, in terms of the development of, of the kink community, World War II relaxed old censorship laws so that magazines in general got a little racier, right? So, uh, hmm. And it's from those kind of racier magazines, you know, pinup magazines, 
that you then, uh, right after World War II, start getting kink-focused publications, right? Uh, John Willie's Bazaar, right? John Coots uh, was really the first, but then Leonard Bertman and others, Irving Claw. Uh, yeah, so World War II, by relaxing those old censorship rules and what could or could not be mailed, opened the door for that. And simultaneously, right, as you said, uh, personal ads are incredibly important. Uh, um, people were putting personal ads before World War II. You just had to know where to to look for them. I mean, there was, a, there was mm-hmm. a, for example, a model train publication that if you knew to, to get this one model train magazine, <laughs> it had gay really? and kink uh, ads in it. Um, very, very coded, right? Very, very kind of subtle. Before the internet, how do people find out, like, this is the code words that you have to use? Here's this model train magazine that if you look <laughs> in the back, you might be able to find what you're looking for. It was just all very not as good as a wake kind of thing. Yeah, it's you, you ha- that's the problem, right? You have to find someone who then clues you in that uh, uh, someone uh, having an ad in the New York Times saying, I'm into collecting flags actually uh-huh. means they're into flagellation. Right. Some things we know, Greek, of course, but but there are all sorts of them. The big magazine that goes that direction, that it's never technically a kink magazine, uh, was called Justice Weekly. And it was published in Canada all through the 60s and into the 70s. And it was uh, it was a takeoff on kind of these detective magazines. So it was uh, reporting kind of lurid crime reporting. But it took classified ads uh, and, and the classified ads became racier over time. And eventually the classified ads are almost all sexual are taking up uh-huh. half the magazine's pages. So it's hiding this sexual content under the idea of, oh, isn't this horrible, this this kind of violence and crime and such, and yet here all the ads are. Uh, and they get a little more explicit over time. And they also get increasingly kinky. Uh, by some of the issues I was looking at, there are actually people placing ads saying, almost word for word, I'm not interested in what most of the people in this magazine are interested in, right? I just want to meet someone for a good time. In other words, I'm not kink. Won't anyone think of the poor vanilla swingers? Yeah, because they, they were they were there too. And yeah, so you're getting women advertising for, you know, looking for a real he-man who's into leather, right? It's about as, mm. as, as out as they would get um, there. Once the dirty magazines, if you will, with pictures in them realized that, hey, there is a market for personal ads, then they began accepting personal ads, too, in the 1960s. Um, and, of course, that is how Eulenspiegel tests in New York. The first group starts. Uh, Pat Bond just puts an ad. Uh, Village Voice wouldn't take his ad. He puts it in uh, and screw in another underground newspaper uh, just asking to meet fellow masochists. And that, hmm. uh, and that group then coalesced into tests. Uh, Cynthia Slater, very similar in uh, in uh, San Francisco, just advertising in the Berkeley Barb uh, to get Janice started uh, in the early 70s. That network of kind of personal correspondence, because there are for a decade or more, right, two, 20 years perhaps, people meeting each other through these correspondence ads, talking to each other. There are almost international networks of kinksters that we know very little about because they don't leave mm-hmm. records behind to tell us. Uh, And, of course, at the same time that's happening, right, gay leather bars develop, right? Gold Coast and Mm. Chicago, um, you know, the slot and all all the the, the numerous bars uh, in in San Francisco, uh, the Eagle, you know, uh, others in in New York. So if you're gay, you've got both options. You've got the correspondence networks and and there were gay men working through those. But you also then have, right, the network of leather bars 
for which there are eventually guides, right? The, uh, the gay, uh, there are several uh, kind of famous guidebooks to, to uh, gay bars saying, if you're looking for this, go to this bar. If you're looking for right, kink, rough sex, and so on, you go to these bars. And yeah, those are really the, the origins of our community. I mean, the one I, other I'd put in there are pro-doms, uh, which people often tend to forget. So if you kind of want to kind of look at, at the origins of the community as kind of a, a three-legged stool, it is kind of the heterosexual correspondence networks. Uh, it's uh, uh-huh. publishers. It's pro-doms, who, of course, are advertising right for customers, right, and the gay leather bars. I did pro-doming for three years myself, um, but I didn't know that we were that important for making the kink lifestyle as we see it now. That's nice. Oh, definitely. I like learning. As a source of technique, a source of education. Oh, Cynthia mm-hmm. Slater, right, founder of uh, Janice in San Francisco, worked as a pro-dom on and off. Yeah, yeah. We, we Janice is still here and very active. Um, uh, I check out their calendar. Uh, for sure, when I was a baby kinkster and just starting, it was a really uh, valuable resource for me. From what you came across, I'm wondering if there was any galvanizing moment. I know in the the gay community and so much of what people consider to be BDSM came out of the leather man gay community. But I was wondering if there's any moment like the Stonewall riot where people look back and see all these different disparate communities that were very insular and spread out and just kind of communicating in their odd little fashions through publications. Was there anything that caused them to come together or some defining moment that made them come together and try to unite under a larger banner of what became the BDSM community? Not on the scale of Stonewall. Um, the closest I think we would come to is there was a club in Boston uh, called the Thunderbird uh, Club or the Thunderbirds. Uh, and they were, uh, they were having um, just parties in the basement of, of their converted house, you know, some gay, some mixed. Uh, and the police found out and raided it. And, and in terms of the SM community, that's really the first big raid where suddenly um, there's national attention to it. Uh, it sparks massive organizing in the Boston area and New, well, really through New England. So uh, New England Leather Alliance, right, Cecilia Tan's old group, that, that starts getting organized around as a result of this. It's, as far as I can tell, the first really national fundraising organ, you know, effort by the community to say, we're going to fund the legal defense of the people who are arrested uh, by the police at this play party. But we don't remember it, right? The way, uh, uh-huh. the way Stonewall is, uh, is remembered. For sure. Yeah, I'm very familiar with Stonewall, but I, I did not know that particular piece of history. And We're going to have to I, look that up now. The yeah, Thunderbird yeah. Club. I'm, I mean, I'm very curious about history and our origins. And uh, thank you. I just learned something. I love learning things. Yeah. And, and you can see that because uh, there's another raid uh, in the Boston area, Paddleboro, uh, which happened Attleboro, Massachusetts. It, it's a very similar raid. And the interesting looking at these two, which are almost a decade apart, uh, is the press roundly condemned BDSM, uh, a columnist in, in uh, the big Boston newspaper, yeah, condemned uh, uh, SMers as deviants and got what they deserved and crazy people. Roughly 10 years later, the Attleboro raid, uh, the press is on the side of the BDSM community, right? Don't the police have better things to do than hassle mm-hmm. people who are just having a good time and not bothering anyone? What laws were they charging them for violating if it wasn't? Because I know there was a lot of homosexual laws on the books, and that's what they were arresting the gay men for was the anti-sodomy laws. But what specific laws did they say they were breaking? In Boston, 
It would be assault uh, at the Attleboro party. Uh, uh, two people hmm. were arrested. The woman was arrested for spanking another woman with a wooden spoon. Right. So that's considered assault. Mm -hmm. uh, BDSM toys could be labeled as deadly weapons, uh, and, and those charges were used on occasions. And a number of states, and Massachusetts was one of them at the time, dildos were illegal. Really? Uh, I, I think you could have one, but I think if you had more than one, it was like like drugs. It was intent to distribute or something. <laughs> uh, intent I, to fuck multiple people? Yeah. There are still uh, specific states where you can't yeah. mail in things, where mm -hmm. they're like, we don't want your filthy sex toys. Keep that away. You were saying in that 10-year period, the public narrative shifted from these filthy perverts to 10 years later in, in Attleboro. It was, okay, they should be left alone. What do you think caused the kind of cultural shift in that decade for people to be like, it's okay for other people to hit each other with wooden spoons? I think it was safe, sane, consensual. We were talking earlier about, about mm. you know, safe, sane, consensual mm -hmm. and how it's used internally. Uh, but safe, mm -hmm. sane, consensual is at least as important to explain to outsiders how the community functions, right? Mm. So inside the community, it's don't do that. It's not safe, saying consensual, right? For the outsiders, it's leave us alone. What we're doing mm -hmm. is safe, saying consensual. And if you just think, think about how much kink vocabulary has moved to the mainstream, right? That mainstream comics can joke about uh, safe words, right? That, that, mm -hmm. that consent mm -hmm. a, as an issue is is now far beyond the kink community in, in which you know we, we normally talk about consent and have much more nuanced as a society have much more nuanced uh conversations mm -hmm. about consent than we did 40 years ago say when i was an undergrad mm -hmm. um and i think a lot of that comes out of the kink community um you know by by unifying wow. by making a voice for our community uh and getting that message out there and staying on message uh -huh. But there's still some legal difficulty going on. One of the articles that your book was referenced in was from Sports Illustrated because there was a court case against a pitcher for the L.A. Dodgers who was claiming he had consensual rough sex with a woman, but she said that it wasn't. So where do you see the laws heading in the future being able to back up such risky, rough play? Yeah, that... Uh, that was an incredibly, obviously, disappointing, uh, I think, court decision for all, uh, for anybody uh, uh, in this country, especially for the kink community. I mean, for those who don't know, mm -hmm. uh, the baseball player essentially said, you know, she asked for rough sex and as near as anyone can tell, beat her unconscious mm -hmm. um, such that she were, you know, black eyes and, and, and serious injuries requiring her to go to the emergency room to get treatment. Um and yeah, and this is the point that that all of us who talked to the reporter from Sports Illustrated, I think everybody who's talked to this case kind of said, is that, you know, when, when someone says, I'm into rough sex, that's the start of the conversation. It's not the end, mm. right? You then have to have, well, how rough and what do you like? And you do spanking, face slapping. A hundred percent. Yeah. Yeah. Start of the conversation, not end. I'm into rough sex does not mean I want to end up in the hospital needing treatment and with two black eyes. Yeah. Like, yeah, it, it seems to me that that using rough sex and, and BDSM as a hall pass for egregious behavior keeps getting a, a pass in the court system. Do you see that changing in any way? Or is that something that people are going to keep being able to use to say, oh, well, it's not my fault. She asked for it because she likes it rough. 
I wish it wasn't that easy, and I, and I think it depends on, on judges and juries, as it always does uh, in the United States. I was really surprised by the Trevor Bauer case, that, that I, I had thought society had changed enough that, uh, but, but there is, and I think part of the problem is that, is that uh, it's not just they asked for it, it's almost, they asked for it, they're kinky, right, and, and the narrative follows from there, you know. They got what was coming to them, kind of. It is as much as I think I talk in my book about how much the kink community has has gained, right? Uh, how much things have changed in, say, 40, 50 years. Uh, in some ways, they haven't. Um, and in some ways, it, it, it goes beyond kink, right? It, it's uh, we're still in a society in, in which, uh, well, I mean, the classic trope of a horror movie. Women who are overly sexually attractive or overly sexually interested tend to wind up as the victims in horror movies, right? These narratives yes. uh, still mm. play out in our society, and I unfortunately think that's part of what, what goes uh, on. You get to be a Madonna or you get to be a whore, and there's not really any space in between for anything. There's nothing more intimidating for some folks than a woman actually being comfortable with her sexuality and owning it. I speak from bitter personal experience. And that would be the interesting thing, if we had a case that flipped this narrative, right? What if it's a guy who winds up in the hospital with a broken nose and a couple black eyes and the woman says, well, you know, he said he was into rough sex. Well, it's difficult. I know one of the things, I don't know what you've come across in your studies around this, is that since there is the safe, sane, consensual aspect to the kink community, but there's no real form that consent takes. It's nearly impossible to go over everything that's going to unfold during a scene before the scene happens. You never want to give consent during a scene. So have you seen anything in your research and in the history that you've come across of anybody trying to codify that in any way? Not in, in the sense of kind of, kind of broad rules uh, for the community. Um, a, a lot of uh, local groups used to you know, have discussions and you used to see lots of articles on, on what SSC means to me. I, I think the community always kind of understood that Everybody had to define their own, you know, what was what they were willing to do, uh, uh, where their safe limits were. And you see it in in uh, in, uh, in some of the kind of the, the BDSM uh, handbooks, right? The how to manuals. You read Jay Weissman, who I'm sure you guys know. Uh, safety advice on top of safety advice on top of safety advice. Uh, I remember looking at his book on rope bondage. And I don't think anybody gets tied up until halfway into the book that it's all all talking about safety, uh, um, whereas other books, right, other other people, you know, in, in the kink are, oh, you know, let's uh, let's get started. Uh, we'll figure it out as we go. Well, I, I wonder what your opinion is, is if it's a double-edged sword for the BDSM kink community that they are getting more recognized in society, but because of that, it's eliminated the common enemy that has brought them together by under with with law enforcement coming down hard on them. And now that they can come together, there's plenty of public dungeons that people can do it. Is it a double edged sword that that common enemy has gone away? And now it seems like they're fragmenting and becoming more siloed in their own little communities. Yeah, and that's yeah. You know, I, I kind of left it open ended as I wrap my book up, but that that is kind of the direction are going. That a lot when the community was smaller, it was easier for the community to police itself internally, right? To get rid of at least the worst of the predators. Um, the community is so large now; it's so diffuse. Even if someone wanted to try to police it, 
Uh, um, where is the forum in which you say, hey, watch out for these three people? Um, they've been causing yeah. trouble. There isn't anymore. Uh, so, yeah, the community has benefited by being larger. And uh, Public Dungeons is another one. I mean, if you go, go back to the 90s, outside of New York, San Francisco, L.A., Chicago, you're not finding Public Dungeons. I teach at the University of Memphis. <laughs> Buckle the Bible Belt, as people like to say. There's mm -hmm. a public dungeon in Memphis. They're not as public as other public dungeons, like, say, uh, mm -hmm. what's the one in D.C., the Sanctuary. But they're there, and if you look, you can contact them. You don't have to find them in the, the back of model railroad magazines right. now. <laughs> They've got a website. I'm also into flags. You just like vexology. That's all. I'm just saying I'm a vexologist. <laughs> Your point of that we we don't have a universal place that we can go and warn about predators, even when you put together something like the shitty men in media list, the 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 Google document that was created, the creator of it was sued by Stephen Elliott mm -hmm. because he objected the the author he objected to his name being in there and he said that he was uh, unfairly accused. So even if you do put together a list to warn people, you can easily have someone get lawsuit happy and say, I object. I shouldn't be on the list. That's wrong. Uh, there isn't, as far as I can see, a very effective way to police something that I see as a daily issue in my community. Uh, I wish that I had a solution because I would apply it, but I do not. And getting sued is very expensive. Yeah, and that's the problem, right? That's that's what happened with FetLife when people tried to organize FetLife in that way, right? The owners of FetLife said, "Hey, you know, this is right. This is opening us up to litigation." Whereas in a small community, you go over to someone, you tap on the shoulder, and say, "Hey, I know you're new to the group, and I say you're kind of talking to him, and just be aware that there have been some right issues uh, with him in the past." And right, you can't get sued. If you over do that, that now, <laughs> yeah. you're accused. Of, you're accused of drama. Uh, yeah. Also, I'm. I'm curious from an academic standpoint. Uh, I have noticed because I do try as part of my service to the community to warn about predators. It does seem that because we're all the hero of our own narrative, that each person thinks they are the charming exception. So even if you do get warned about something, or that this person's a predator or dangerous, or given really concrete examples. Well, yeah, but they're not like that with me. So you must be mistaken or bitter or full of drama. There isn't a, it appears to be an effective way to warn about issues like this. And I think that is one of the biggest issues in the lifestyle that we currently have because it's so flooded and there are so many people here, but you can't do the tap on the shoulder, be cautious of this person. That uh, system of check and balances has been removed. Do you can you possibly theorize of a of a another way that we could fix that, or is that just an ongoing issue we're going to have to deal with? I, I think it's an ongoing issue, but and obviously, mm -hmm. right, the the usual things you tell right new people, right, um, you know, play in public, right, the first time you play with someone, go to an go to now that we have access, right, to all these public dungeons, go somewhere, you know, where there's a dungeon monitor, or or you know. Um, yeah, I knew people who, you know, when someone wanted to meet them, they would always say, OK, you know, I will meet you at the local leather bar or I will meet you at uh, our, our local convention. Right. It's coming up, uh, you know, living in leather or black rose or whatever. I'll meet you at the convention. Right. Meet them in a public place and preferably a scene place, because that tells you something about a person too. a surprising number of people uh, looking for BDSM partners online won't go to scene places. 
And that should be a red flag right away. And Uh when you say that as an educator, oh, they clutch their pearls and get so offended just because I'm doing my kink different than you doesn't mean I'm not safe. That's discriminatory and gatekeeping. But yes, I couldn't agree more. You're 100% right there. And that used to be the role role of clubs like Janus was to be gatekeepers, right? To bring people in Mm -hmm. and socialize them. And the ones that couldn't be socialized, yep, you kick them out. You warn people. Mm -hmm. I mean, Mm -hmm. it's all you can really do. Uh, you're at least well, doing I think it's it. also the, the burden of the internet because there is so much more information out there. There's so much more education that people can get, but then it also offers that layer of anonymity where you have no real idea who you're meeting on there, especially if they're now pushing to meet to do a scene and you're new and you haven't had any real exposure to it. So there is so much more that people can learn, but it's also added that level of danger since there isn't that small community. Yeah, and, and see, in the 80s, people used to do that, right? You'd meet someone in a correspondence, mat, you know, exchange a few letters, and you'd meet somewhere. These days, we have so many options. Uh, you know, the King community mm-hmm. has so many options for where to meet people uh, that there's no reason, right, to just show up at a stranger's hotel room. Yeah. Gee, I hope this works out well. Yeah. First off, with living in leather and this, uh, are you going to move on to... Other topics like uh, something other than military and kink, or do you think that kink is something that you're going to continue to explore in future books? Oh, I, oh I'm definitely going to continue uh, uh, to explore kink. I, I like working in military history. I, I, I like kink, and I, I, what I'd like to do is write a biography of Tony de Blas to really do a deep dive. Oh, and I've just begun looking okay. at his papers um, at the Leather oh, nice. Archives to kind of figure out what's. Uh, uh, what's there? Because almost anything that happened in the scene, right, in the '80s and into the '90s, right, he he had a hand in. He was using far more than people at the time even realized. Tony was uh, uh, was behind the scenes. So, so yeah, I definitely want want to build on what I've done. So all roads lead to Rome, and all floggers lead to Tony. Um, they certainly used to. <laughs> they they <laughs> certainly used to. Um, and that was hard part of how the community was different. I mean, you talk to people in the community in the 80s and even in the early 90s, you're probably only three or four phone calls away from contacting almost anybody in the scene. Because uh, it was mm-hmm. that tightly knit, that formed around local organizations. So you say, oh, the person is in this city, well, call this person. And you call that person, and they, maybe they don't know the person, but they'll know someone who does. A really mm-hmm. much smaller uh, community uh, than uh, than it is today. Okay, uh, last question for me. If obviously we want listeners and you want readers, you know, buy this book. If there was one single kernel, bite-sized piece of knowledge that you would want someone to take away from this book, the essence of it, what would that be? It would be the importance that the community used to place on unity. Uh, on organizing together as a community uh, and all the ways in which uh, it organized as a community, um, you know, which had to do, as we've talked, with, with safe, sane, consensual and how you behave and what it means to be part of this community. Um, you know, I, I think our whole conversation this night kind of revolved around the sense that something has been lost in the community or is being lost. Uh, so, so I hope, you know, perhaps for the community, for someone in the community reading my book, that hopefully will be the message uh, that they get out of it, that, that there was uh, and still is a, a reason for the community to be, uh, to be tight and to be communicating with each other. Nice. Mm-hmm. Thank yeah, you. Well said. Uh, I was curious, 
just as an aside away from the BDSM stuff, as a historian, what is the, the most bizarre or funny or just memorable favorite story that you've ever come across in your study of history? Oh, wow. Um, I have to have to think for a minute here and see if I can hopefully Take time. Uh, get a, uh, I suppose probably one of the more interesting things in the community is, is humor within the community that you actually get the same jokes within the, one of the ways you can tell it's a community is the same, uh, uh, the same jokes being told in different cities by different people. Uh, and a, and a mm-hmm. commonality of uh, of humor, um, and a joke I had told to me by at least twenty or thirty different uh, uh, folks in the BDSM community. Um, I assume I can say something like this on your podcast, since it's uh, uh, feel it's, free it's, to say whatever. It's uh, it's why did Jesus die on the cross? Why did Jesus die on the cross? Forgot his safe word. Ah, and, and I have ah. heard that joke across the U.S. Oh. Um, you know, so it's one of the interesting things, oh. right? That that part of what defines a community is its uh, is its humor. Mm-hmm. I want to thank you so much for for joining us. Uh, before we go, uh, if you want to pitch yourself, anything else that you have going on, if you want to throw out your social medias, where people can find you. Yeah, I'm I'm fairly boring, uh, but college professor, uh, University of Memphis. Uh, if you just Google Stephen K. Stein, I'll come right up. The book, of course, right? Kinky People Unite. Uh, that should come right up in a search as well. Are you on FetLife? Um, I am. I on FetLife to lurk and see what's going on, and you know, but I'm not actively <laughs> in purely academic fashion. Yeah, I actually mentioned it in the book a couple of times because um, yeah, so I got in to kind of see the debates and and, uh, and to talk about a few things. To see how influential the Gore books still are, uh, which surprises mm-hmm. me. You're going to be on FetLife because we're going to be promoting this podcast on FetLife. So, oh, cool. you know, come yeah. on by and say hi. Uh, I, w- I will do that. Well, thank you so much again, Professor Stein, for coming on and answering our questions. You were incredibly enlightening. And we learned so much about the history and the beginnings or not even the beginnings, it. but just just the Everything. all the random stories that have come out of uh, yeah. where kink was and where kink is and where kink is possibly going in the future. I hope everyone that's listening to this enjoy this podcast as much as we did. Like this was a, a delight. I learned so much. Uh, I always want to keep learning, but for sure, thank you very much for joining us tonight. Oh, thanks. It was a lot of fun. And I also want to thank you, dear listeners, for tuning in for another episode of the Duty Talk podcast. You can find us on all your social medias. We hope that your ear holes were packed full of precious and new information that you enjoyed. Yes. And if you are a Patreon subscriber, we will be releasing the whole interview on the Patreon. It was long. There was so much information that we wanted to put in, but... For time management reasons, we didn't. So if you want to hear the whole interview we did with Professor Stein, please check out our Patreon, which is patreon.com backslash Dirty Talk Podcast. We have some more interviews that we will be doing in the future. So we hope that you join us for those and join us for our regular episodes that come out weekly. Thanks again for joining us and we'll talk to you later. Catch you next time.